Changing the Sales Game on webtalkradio.net. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Connie Whitman. As always, I'm happy you're here. So I hope as we go down this journey together of changing the sales game that you absolutely feel my passion and that I'm creating a movement that this word sales, we're going to really shift it so icky and sleazy and manipulation don't even come into our brains, that when we hear that word sales, we know it's about service and love and caring and a respectful exchange with whatever it is that you're selling or whatever your business is that you're offering. So join me on that mission and we can make that change together. So my motivational quote I wanted to start with is by one of my favorite leadership experts ever, and it's by Stephen Covey. And he says, our character is basically a composite of our habits because they are consistent, often unconscious patterns. They consistently, daily express our character. So I ask, do you have bad habits? Come on. You know what I'm talking about. We all have them. So if we know what's considered a good versus a bad habit, then why do we have so many bad habits that we use every day? Well, most of us have tried to lose weight, get in better shape by going to the gym every day, eating healthier, stop smoking, and the list just goes on and on. So if we know we are making those bad habits or, or good habits, those choices, why do we still have so many that are that often seem, I think, to be out of control or we feel like we don't have control? Well, what if I told you there is an almost foolproof way to really change up your behavior patterns? Do I have your attention? Is this even possible? Well, I think the answer is yes. So today my, my guest is James Clear. Um, James and I, we're going to discuss his new book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. We're going to break down how to actually change or form a habit that you'll get to stick. Now, James is a, uh, is a writer. He's a speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. You'll hear his story and understand that. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Time, and on CBS This Morning. He's a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in, wait for it, the NFL, NBA, NBA and the MLB. Not sure why he's not in the NHL. We'll talk about that. <laughs> And through his online course, The Habits Academy, uh, James has taught more than 10,000 leaders, manager, coaches, and teachers. Um, the Habit Academy is the premier training platform for individuals and organizations that are interested in building better habits in life and in work. So, James, I you know thank you so much uh, for joining me. And your book, I really think, is revolutionary. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be speaking with you as well. Yeah, real pleasure. All right. So my first question before we jump into the book, why not the NHL? What's going on? <laughs> I think actually I do have a few hockey players who are reading, but, uh, but Yay! Those three, uh, the other three sports, uh, I have some of the coaches who are, uh, who are on my newsletter list. So I guess, uh, I guess I need to throw the NHL on there as well. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. That's a hockey mom talking, James. I, love, right, it. I love it. And thank you for, for fielding that one off the cuff. All right. So how do, how do you think, and in your book you describe this, but how, how does peer pressure and social norms influence our actual habits that we formulate? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting question. So uh, in the book, I break habits into four kind of stages um, and social norms influence, they heavily influence what I call the second stage. Um, so you let me go through the four stages real quick and then I'll answer the social norms question. Perfect. So um, 
every habit kind of has these four steps that it follows. And the first step is what we commonly call a cue or a trigger or prompt is something gets your attention. So like you walk into, um, you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. So that's often the cue is visual, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, but in many cases it is the second step, which is what we're going to talk about more in a minute. Uh, is what I call the craving. And essentially, your brain makes a prediction. So you, you see something or you uh, pick up on a bit of information, something you hear or touch, and then your brain predicts what is going to come next. So you see the plate of cookies and you predict, say, for example, that uh, this is going to be tasty and so I should eat them. And then the next stage is the response. So you actually go over and eat the cookie. Um, and then the final stage is the reward. And that's like the benefit that you get from the action. So in this case, the cookie tastes good. Um, now, you can imagine, however, that your predictions vary depending on the state or the context. Um, so, you know, for if you just ate uh, a big dinner in the other room and had a few cookies and you walk in and you see another plate of cookies in the kitchen, well, now you might be like, oh, I'm stuffed. Like, I don't want to eat anything. Um, so the difference between how you, the prediction you make or the craving you have uh, depends on your current state. And this is where social norms and peer pressure uh, come into play, because in many cases, the habits and behaviors that seem attractive to us are the ones that go with the grain of our culture or norm or social tribe. So, you know, society leans heavily on us all. We have we have all sorts of habits that we fall into, mostly because they're like a shared expectation among the groups that we're in. So if you. You know, like if you pull up to a stop sign, pretty much everybody decides to stop there. Uh, if you go into an elevator, you turn around and face the front. If you have a job interview, you wear a suit and tie or a dress or something nice. There's no reason that you have to do those things, right? Like you could wear a bathing suit to a job interview or you could roll through stop signs or you could um, – turn around and face the back of the elevator instead of the front. Like you don't have to do that stuff, but it would violate society's expectation or the shared expectation of the group. And so that's true, not just on like a big level on the society level of like what it means to be an American or French or something like that. But it's also true for the smaller groups that we're part of, you know, like being a part of your local CrossFit gym or a volunteer organization or uh, being a member of like all the neighbors on your street. Every one of those little tribes has a set of shared expectations and those social norms can either like nudge you toward certain habits or prevent you or nudge you away from others. And so I think the key here when it comes to building better habits is to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because it's if it's the normal behavior within the group, then you're going to have a really good reason to stick with it. Um, whereas if it goes against the grain of the group, then it's going to be challenging for you because you're going to feel like you're battling uh, the expectations of everybody else. And I'll add a, a second caveat to that, which I don't hear people talk about very often, but I think is crucial, which is you want to join a, a group where your desired behavior is a normal behavior and you already have something else in common with them. Because the thing that makes the only reason you don't want to violate the norms of any particular group is because you want to be friends with them. You want to belong with them. And so if you already have something else in common with them, then you have a reason to bond and be friends over that. And then you can start to pick up the desired thing that you want to build um, along the way. So to give you like a concrete example, my friend Steve Cam, he runs this company called Nerd Fitness. And it's about getting in shape, uh, but he writes articles and it's oriented towards people who identify as nerds, people who love Star Wars or who love like Batman and Spider-Man, the Marvel Universe and Legos and all this other stuff. And so you can imagine if you're trying to get in shape for the first time, that can feel kind of intimidating. You feel out of place in the gym. You don't feel like you belong. You're not sure what to do. But if you can bond with the rest of the group over like your mutual love of Star Wars, 
then you can become friends with them. And then you start to pick up the other stuff. It's like, oh, well, they work out all the time, too. And I'm friends with them. So maybe I should do it as well. Um, and so having that those reasons, those connections to build friendships and bond is a way to, like, turn peer pressure to your advantage and use social norms to make habits more attractive and, uh, and enticing. Do you find James that, uh, and I, I love that whole concept. Okay. But do you find that people will put themselves in positions where, where it's comfortable and they can be friends in an unhealthy manner? So then, then, then they justify, right? Oh, I'm overweight, but you know, all my friends are overweight too. Right. Do, do you see that as well? So it's a great question, and it's something that is true for almost all habits, which is habits can be a double-edged sword. They can either work for you or against you. And so in the book, you know, I just laid out these four laws of behavior or these four steps, and from each step, we have a law. So like for uh, Q, it's make it obvious because you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious. For the craving, what we just talked about, you want it to be attractive, so make it attractive is the second law. Then make it easy, make it satisfying. But you can invert each of those four laws um, to make it easier to break a bad habit. Because again, these things can work for you or against you. So make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And, uh, so the question that you, that you just brought up is definitely true. And there's actually, there are research studies that show this on both ends. So for example, if you, um, one study looked at thousands of people, I think it was like 20,000 people, uh, over multiple years. And they found that if you have a friend who gains weight, you are like 57% more likely to gain weight yourself, mm -hmm. uh, even if that friend lives 500 miles away. Um, and then same thing on the other end, if you have a spouse who loses weight, 30% of the time, the other partner will lose weight as well. Uh, so habits can, they, the peer pressure can work for you in both directions. Um, and the point here I think is, and this is kind of the central thing that I was getting to anyway, is that, um, we take on the habits and behaviors, the expectations, the norms of those people who are around us. So we need to think carefully about who those groups are. And uh, sometimes that can work for us and sometimes it can work against us. Yeah. You hear business leaders say all the time and thought leaders, look at the five people that are closest to you. And that's why your life is where it is, right? Good or bad, that's, that you are a measure of who you surround yourself with. So it's the same thing with habits. So, um, yeah, well said. How long, James, how long does it take to actually shift or create a new, hopefully better habit? Mm. Yeah. So this might be the most common question that I get is like, how long does it take to build a new habit? Um, and people have heard varying answers to this, right? Like 21 days or 30 days, or there's one research study that the average was 66 days. So a lot of people are throwing that out now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it is true that on average, that study found that it took about 66 days. And I think that as a general rule, that's a decent way to set your expectations. Like this is going to take a few months. Uh, it's not going to be some, a really quick fix. Yeah. Um, however, even within that study, the range was very wide. So if it was a very easy habit, like drinking a glass of water at lunch, it only took a few weeks. And if it was something more difficult, like going for a run after work every day, that would take like seven or eight months. Um, wow. So... Uh, but I actually think the real answer, the deeper answer to this is that the implicit assumption when you ask how long does it take to build a new habit is like, how long does it take for me to get to the finish line? That's kind of like what you're, you're thinking. Sure. And I feel like that, um, that actually is the wrong angle to take if you're trying to build better habits, because the, the, the honest answer is how long does it take to build a habit? Well, it takes forever because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And so I think people need to start looking at habits as a lifestyle to live and not a finish line to be crossed. 
because once you adopt this mindset of, oh, this is a permanent lifestyle change, that's another reason to pick small, sustainable 1% improvements that you can actually build into your life and stick with over the long run. Because you, what you really want is to become that type of person where that is like the normal thing for you to do rather than, oh, I'll just like push really hard for three months and then this problem will be fixed. And you, you gave so many t- examples, again, in the book um, of those little baby steps that you didn't um, change things overnight, that you really had to work on that one little behavior, and then that becomes kind of how you think. It becomes part of you. Then you add the next behavior, et cetera. And, and you're right. I mean, we have to do it one, one baby step at a time. Now, I know people are listening saying, yeah, but, you know, I'm overweight because of my family history or uh, genes, you know, my gene pool uh, of, of ancestry. How does that play mm. into what you've done in your research that you've done? So genes play an interesting role in habit formation. I think there's, uh, there's two ways to look at it. Um, so the first is that your genes are, they present what I would call like a matching problem for you and your habits. So, um, if you're seven feet tall, let's just use an extreme example to make the point clear. If you're seven feet tall and you want to play basketball, then your genes are a great asset. But if you're seven feet tall and you want to be a gymnast, your genes are a great hindrance. It's not, you know, so like it, the whether or not your genes are useful, some people often think about like, oh, I got this bad genetic hand. But really, it's much more about matching your genes to the appropriate environment. You know, so like whether you're seven feet tall, great. That's the great set of jeans on basketball court, terrible set of jeans in the gymnasium. Um, and so um, the the thing to focus on is what is the right um, environment or context for your particular genetic makeup? And this brings me to my second point about genes, which is, I think, one way to think about this is through the lens of personality. Um, so the most, uh, rigorous personality test, uh, thus far is what's called the big five or variants of the big five. And it basically maps your personality on five different dimensions. Um, the most common one that people are familiar with is introversion on one side and extroversion on the other, but there are other ones like agreeableness and openness to experience and things like that. And, um, there have been a variety of research studies that show like some really interesting things. So uh, specifically how your genes or your genetic makeup is linked to this personality trait. So uh, for example, if you take a set of babies in the nursing ward, there was one study done where um, they would play a harsh noise on one side of the ward and some of the babies would turn toward the noise and some of it would turn away from the noise. And what they found when they tracked these babies through their lives is the ones that turned toward the noise were more likely to be extroverts and the ones that turned away from the noise were more likely to be introverts. So there's something going on there genetically where you're kind of like hardwired from birth, uh, to have certain personality traits. And, um, Another personality trait uh, that is on the big five dimensions is conscientiousness, which essentially means like if you're high in conscientiousness, you're pretty orderly um, and like plan well. And if you're low in conscientiousness, then you're maybe more free flowing and don't uh, you're not as like much of a planner. Well, uh, you can imagine that for someone who is low in conscientiousness, this is how we're going to tie it back to habits here. If this is your personality, you might have trouble like remembering when to do the habit. If you leave it up to that, you're not you're not a planner. You don't make lists and things like that. So for someone who is low in conscientiousness, uh, having an environment that is designed to make habits easier for you might be a really useful way to build better habits. And so I, I give more examples in the book, but um, 
if you essentially, if you get a handle on what your personality is, it might give you some insight into the, which levers to pull or which areas to focus on that will be more fruitful for you when it comes to building better habits. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I, I like how you present that, that genes aren't good or bad per se, but how can we leverage them in our favor? So if I'm not a planner, what do I need to do to put the cues in place to remind me to do what I need to do. You're clearly right. a Genes are only useful within a particular context. So it's up to you to design the context that best fits your genetic package. Absolutely. And, and here's, here's the, re- the reality. We're in control. And, and, and I, that's why in my intro I said sometimes we feel like that habit is out of control, that it's just happening because we're not thinking about it. We really have control. We just have to stop and think about and put those markers in place to help us be in control or feel like we're in control, I would think. Yeah. You're, you know, at a, like a high level, your habits are essentially a set of solutions that you come up with for the problems that you face over and over again in life. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if you come home from work each day and you feel stressed and exhausted, then that's a problem, so to speak, that your brain tries to figure out a solution for. And so for some people, maybe they play video games for an hour or watch TV person, maybe they smoke a cigarette for a third person, maybe they go for a run for 20 minutes. And any one of those solutions could become a habit that resolves the same recurring problem that you're facing of feeling stressed and exhausted. And so I think one of the core lessons to, and what you sort of just hinted at there is that the original habit that you build, the original solution you come up with is not necessarily the optimal solution. But we often don't think about it. It's just non-conscious. We're just like falling into that pattern over and over again because it resolves this whatever this tension or problem is that we're facing over and over again. And so once you realize that, then it becomes your responsibility to be more aware of what your habits are and then to design more optimal habits rather than continue to fall into that original path. We like our story. We like we like our habits and we like to say, oh, I can't because we love excuses, right, as a society, too. It's unfortunate but that's, that's just the reality. Now, in the book, you also talk about there's some downsides of building better habits. Can you, can you talk about that? Because it's very interesting. Yeah, so um, essentially habits are the prerequisite to mastery. Uh, and what I mean by that is that high performance in pretty much any area requires you to master the fundamentals. You know, if you want to play chess, for example, you need to be able to know where all the pieces move pretty much on autopilot before you start thinking about, all right, this is the move I'm going to make. And then my opponent will make this move because of it. And then I'll do that. And like, you need to clear space for your mind to think about the next level of performance. Same way in, uh, you know, basketball, you need to be able to dribble with both hands without thinking about it before you can move on to like, what offensive play should we run and things like that. Hockey, if we want to make that example, you need to be able to skate on autopilot, right? It needs to be, you need to be very fluent on skates before you can figure out what to do next or the more advanced levels of play. So, uh, this is true for pretty much any area. The more that you can automate something, um, the more you free up space to focus on the next level of improvement. But there is a downside to building better habits, which is that in the beginning, uh, you, you're paying attention, you're practicing something. But as you start to automate it, you stop paying attention to what's going on because now you can do it good enough on autopilot. And so you start to your performance. Actually, there's a couple of research studies that show this. Your performance actually often has a slight dip after you build a habit. So you, now you can do it so well that you're not paying attention to whether you make tiny errors. Um, and so you'll see, for example, uh, surgeons early in their career, 
uh, their skills are ramping up and they're getting better. And then they hit like a little peak where they're kind of at their max a few years in. And then after they've been doing it for so many years, they stop paying attention a little bit and it declines a little bit uh, from there. So um, the downside of building good habits is that you stop paying attention to those little mistakes. And in order to overcome that, what we need is a process of like reflection and review, a process of refinement so that we can stay aware of where we're at and what we need to improve rather than letting ourselves kind of coast and fall into this slight dip. So I do this personally with my habits in two ways. Um, at the end of each year, I do an annual review where I ask myself three questions. The first is, uh, what went well this year? And second is what didn't go so well. And then the third is what I'm working toward. And, um, that's just a chance mostly for me to track my habits. So I write down how many articles I wrote, uh, each year. I write down, uh, how many new places I visited. I write down, um, how many workouts I did. And then I break that out by how many workouts per month and then what my average was per month and compare that to the previous year. And again, that's just this, the whole purpose of the annual review is to kind of reflect and give myself a baseline of what did I actually do this year rather than what, what did I feel like I did. Then six months later, I do the second part of this reflection review process where I conduct what I call an integrity report. And so the integrity report also has three questions. The first question is, what are my core values? Um, second question is, how am I living by those this year? So kind of a chance to pat myself on my back. And then the third one is the most important question, which is, uh, where did I fail to live by those values? And the interesting thing about integrity, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier in our conversation, that ultimately what you're looking for is when you build habits, you want to become, you're looking to become the type of person that you want to be, right? You want this desired identity to be reinforced. And integrity, I would say, is just living in alignment with your values. And you're not going to, the interesting thing about integrity is you're not going to find anybody who doesn't think they have integrity. It's, it's just something that like everybody's like, oh, of course I have integrity. But usually the way that we get off track with that is not by making like one grave mistake but by a bunch of just this once exceptions. And then you turn around two or three or five years later and you're like, oh, my character is different than what I thought it was or what I feel like it was. So those two processes, the annual review helps me track my habits and the integrity report helps me make sure that my habits are in alignment with my values. And uh, those are two ways that I use to try to avoid that little dip in performance and make sure that my habits are staying on the right track. Do you do anything? Um, number one, I love that. That's amazing. You know, should we have annual reviews in, in work, right? Why shouldn't we do our own annual review of us in our personal lives? Mm. Uh, you know, makes sense, right? The should have had a V8. Um, the, the measurement, do you do anything with more frequency so that you're, you're measuring that you're moving your needle to what you want to become? Do you, do you, do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So, um, measurement's a really important question. Uh, I write about it in the book a fair amount. But the, the thing to realize is that, well, there are two things. So broadly speaking, I put habits into two different categories. The first category are things that you can just automate. Like, and once you build it, you don't really need to think about it again, mm -hmm. like flossing your teeth or brushing your, sh uh, or, um, flossing your teeth or tying your shoes, uh, or unplugging the toaster each time you use it or whatever, a bunch of these little habits. Uh, and for those, like if there's a slight dip in performance for tying my shoes, I, I don't really need to worry about that. I don't need to track it. But then there's the other category where there are like a few things in your life and everybody's got a couple that they really do want to be good at. And so for me, it's like writing and photography and weightlifting. Those are kind of the three areas where like, I actually do want to improve here. So I think first of all, you don't need to measure that whole first category. You can just measure the stuff that's really important. Secondly, whenever possible, 
I try to put measurement on autopilot. So like for um, my calendar automatically measures all the new places that I visit each year. Um, so I don't have to worry about tracking that myself for workouts though. I do track them manually and I track them, uh, on a much tighter time frame, which is what you're asking. So like it, during each workout, I track every set and every rep. And then I refer back to what I did the prior week to see what, like what weight I should do this week. So in that case, the feedback cycle is much tighter than just like once a year. Um, and of course that's going to depend on the actual habit. I do something kind of similar for my business. It's not every day, but it's a uh, weekly, like every Friday I'll review the stats and kind of see where things are at. And then each month I review it as well. So the time of the feedback cycle depends on the particular habit you're talking about, but sometimes it can be useful for it to be shorter. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I speak and I teach um, at corporations um, different skills, coaching, sales, service, all those kinds of things. And it's so funny, you know, for 17 years, every class I teach James, the first thing I do when I get in the car is I self-assess myself. Why weren't they engaged with that? What's changed? Was I off my game? How did I say that? Why did I say that? So I'm constantly self-assessing because I want to make sure the next time I teach that same class or the next time I speak in front of a group that I do better and better and better and I push myself because I don't ever want to start to do the you know right. the downward spiral because then that's dangerous. Then you become irrelevant and all those other things. So I well, think- it's a great habit because that's the only way to do that is for you to be on top of it and to continually revisit. Because if you don't, then you're just you're going to have the natural decline. That's exactly right. So thank you for that explanation of short term kind of focus, and then I love that long term that annual review. I think is also important too. You know the other thing too, James. I don't know if you found this for yourself or with your clients and, and after writing the book, we don't take, and it was cute how you said before, I, I do it so I can pat myself on the black back when you mm. do those annual reviews. We don't pat ourselves on the back enough. We're always, I didn't do that. I didn't do this. I didn't get there. Instead of saying, look at, look at all the things I did do though. Right. Right. I think the default mode of the brain is to identify problems. It kind of has to it has to be for you to survive because if you if you don't realize, oh, I need to drink water now or I need to find food now or something like that, then like you wouldn't be able to, to survive. So your brain is always kind of looking for whatever isn't right uh, as the default mode. Right. And so we need these practices to make sure that we remind ourselves of what is right. And there's another uh, effect of that that can be very useful, another effective measurement, which is that it reinforces your desired identity by turning the invisible into something that's visible. So if you use like a habit tracker and every time you make a sales call, you put an X on the calendar or every time you go to the gym, you put an X on the calendar. And then, you you know, if you're trying to build that habit and you get to the end of the month and you see, oh, there's 15 X's on the calendar, maybe you're having a bad day and you feel down. In that case, if you didn't have the calendar, it'd be really easy to think, oh, you know, I've been working hard, but like nothing's happening. I'm not doing it. Nothing has changed. But if you see the calendar, then you can't you can't quite get as down on yourself because you have this evidence, this visual evidence that, oh, 15 times this month I did go to the gym or I did make those sales calls. And so it helps um, reinforce that you're making progress even on the days when you don't feel like it. Yeah, especially like with, with you said, like weightlifting, losing weight. You don't lose weight immediately. You don't all of a sudden you're not the Hulk, you know, mm -hmm. because you've worked out for a month. So yeah, we're like, oh, my, my muscles aren't big enough yet. What am I doing wrong? Instead of waiting that extra week and then all of a sudden you feel like you're bulked up again. The, um, you can look at pretty much any behavior as producing multiple outcomes across time. So if you have like, uh, take a, a bad habit, like eating a donut, 
the immediate outcome is favorable. It's tasty. It's enjoyable. You like it right then. The ultimate outcome is unfavorable. You gain weight in a month or a week or whatever. Um, with going to the gym or some kind of good habit, the immediate outcome is often unfavorable. Like the, like you just said, the reward for going to the gym for a week isn't really a whole lot. Your body doesn't really look different. The scale is basically the same. You just are sweating and putting in effort. Um, the ultimate outcome doesn't come until months later. And this is one of the challenges of building good habits and breaking bad ones is you need to find a way to take the long-term consequences of your bad habits and pull them into the present moment so you can feel them right then. And the long-term benefits of your good habits and pull those into the present moment so that you have a reason to continue to show up while you're waiting for those delayed rewards to arrive. And um, I think that people who are really good at delaying gratification or appear to be that way from the outside are often just good at finding alternative ways to be satisfied in the moment. So they just, they have a different way of feeling like, you know, like if you look at me from the outside, you might say, oh, he goes to the gym four days a week. He's really good at delaying gratification and waiting to, you know, get in shape and so on. But it doesn't feel like that to me. What it feels like is, oh, I, you know, I get to move. I get to see some of my friends at the gym. I enjoy going because it reinforces the fact that like I'm the type of person to, who doesn't miss workouts. And like all of those are immediate benefits. Uh, and so my focus is more on that rather than on waiting for the delayed reward or the scale to change or whatever. Yeah. And um, I think you can apply that to most areas. If you yeah. can find a way to be immediately satisfied, you have a good reason to show up again. Yeah. Again, another good habit to formulate, though, to be able to build those good long-term habits. That's really what, what you're just saying. Were you always, even as a kid, a very disciplined um, methodical because you're very methodical in how you write. And now in, in us chatting, you're very methodical in how you're thinking. Um, mm. were you always like that even as a kid? I think, um, I do think there's some aspects of my personality that are that way. I think an, another big part of my disposition is being curious and being a learner. Like I've always been curious and questioning and like wanting to learn new information and trying to soak stuff up. And I think that combined with, um, I don't know if I would describe it as methodical or as like a desire for sim simplifying or simplicity. So like, okay, let me soak, bring in all the information and then I just want to like simplify it so that it's more easy to understand. And so I think I'm kind of like constantly kind of running that loop and going through that process. It's funny that you said that because in reading your book, I felt you were taking these very complex concepts and then you would write, like, I'd be like, oh, that, that's a really good idea. And then by the end of the chapter, you took that complexity and made it real simple to say, I can do that. Mm. Right. Throughout the book, I felt well, the chapters that I read that, that I felt you, you did a really nice job of bringing the complex to the simple, which is, oh, thank you. which is, I think it's important though, because I think the average bear, the average human, we, we think the more complex it is, the smarter I am instead mm. of the more simple it is, I'll actually do that. And then, Oh, by the way, I'll get better at whatever that skill is for everybody that's trying. So simple works. Yes. I think that's actually a good way to summarize it. Simple works. If you people, sometimes people like to hide behind complexity because it makes them sound smart. Um, but it's more difficult to implement. And so I would rather, uh, use easy to understand language, but have something that I can actionably use and apply in daily life. And so I think that's in a lot of ways, that's my task. How can I find, evidence-based, scientifically-backed strategies and make them very simple and easy to use. Yeah, and the book, everybody that's listening, not only does James take, again, the complex, make it simple, but you use your personal stories and how you went from point A to point B to point C. 
um, in very logical ways. And um, it's really funny because we've all learned that creating, there's so many, there's so much information, James, about changing habits and how to get habits to stick. And as I was reading yours, it literally, cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older, right? And I'm thinking, yeah, that'll work. You know, everyone, I'm like, yeah, that's another great idea. So really, <laughs> I'm telling you, it was hysterical thinking, how, like, wh- why hasn't this been thought of before? And that's why I said to you early on, I feel like your book is revolutionary because it's things we kind of know, but no one's ever really simplified to the point of execution. And I mm. think change happens when there's executable steps to create whatever it is that we're looking to create. And you, you, you simplified that. So I, I have to say, I truly did enjoy the book and I hope people listening um, go buy it. So let's tell them where to find you, James, and how to find your book. Sure. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, yeah. I really appreciate that. I, uh, so the book is called Atomic Habits and you can find it at atomichabits.com. And, uh, if you go there, uh, in addition to the book, there are also some additional bonuses. So there's like a secret chapter that is not included in the book itself. Um, there are some exercises and templates, uh, guides that kind of help you put things together. There's a, uh, five step companion email guide that can kind of like walk you through the book and give you some additional resources uh, and links to check out. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so you can find all of that at atomichabits.com. And the other thing too, James, is you really do take that scientific research and bring it into why it's hard to create a habit. So all of that stuff we talked earlier on on the show, um, that was more of the scientific research, how the the psychology works, how the brain works. So you do a really nice job of, of taking the scientific as well and showing us like, oh, you're not crazy that it's hard for you to create a good habit um, because you have all these natural things at work in us, right? Within our body, within our mind. Um, so it almost makes you feel like, okay, I'm not a crazy person. Every time I try to create a new habit, I fail mm-hmm. um, because we have a lot of stuff on autopilot, unconscious um, by, you know, beliefs and all those things that affect it. So Yeah, I mean, I say this in the book, but if you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you. The problem is your system. Bad habits just persist again and again because you have the wrong system for change. It's not because you don't want to change or you don't know how to change. Um, so the one of the purposes of writing Atomic Habits is to give people a step-by-step system they can follow uh, for making good habits easier and bad habits harder. Absolutely. Real quick, because the Atomic Habits, you, you speak about it in the book, how you got the name. Can you oh, just, yeah. I know we're out of time, but just, I, it, it's brilliant. Sure. So there really are like three meanings to the word atomic and all of them kind of play into the book. So uh, the first meaning of the word atomic is that it's small or tiny. And that is a core part of my philosophy. Like habits should be small and easy to do, um, just like an atom. But there's another meaning to the word atomic, which is that it's the fundamental unit of a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And in a sense, I think we could say that habits are like the atoms of our lives. You know, like there are these fundamental units, these behaviors and patterns that we repeat each day. And when you start to put them all together, you end up with the system of your life. You end up with the system of behaviors that make up your day. And then the third and final meaning of atomic is that it's the source of incredible power uh, or energy. And so I think that that kind of gives you the narrative arc of the book, that if you can make small and easy changes, these little 1% improvements and little habits, and layer them on top of each other so that they're kind of the fundamental units in a larger system, 
eventually you'll get this like incredible outcome or this powerful result. And um, the word atomic sort of encapsulates all three of those phases. Yeah, I love that. And I love the description of the book. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I know we went a little over, but I, I think it's important because people are like atomic habits. What does that mean? There was a lot of thought that went into that title of the book. So it was, I thought it was important to share. Um, everybody, once again, please, please uh, go visit uh, James's website, jamesclear.com. But really, really um, check out the book, atomichabits.com. Um, he gives you a whole bunch of other insight and free information and templates that will just help you create the change that you're looking for. Uh, James, thank you so much again. Thank you for the book. Thank you for being on and just being a delight um, and being very articulate and sharing um, your vision, but also in sharing um, to help people become the better version of themselves. I think that's awesome. Thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you. A, a true pleasure. I hope you guys will all join me weekly as we question, build, and discover together just how to grow and challenge ourselves so that we can embrace change and use a book like The Atomic Habits that uh, James Clear has written to help us create that change that we're looking for. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review and share it with your friends. Tune in every week for more exciting insights and strategies on increasing your business's ROI. And always remember, lead with heart and your sales will follow.